And good morning. It's time for the Mike Hewitt Show, brought to you by RenegadeRiver.com. And now your host, Mike Hewitt. Hey, good morning. I made it. I was able to get mostly through the socialist debate last night without pulling out the last of my three or four hairs. I did make it. Listen, in the studio with us today is Matt Wiedenhoff, and as always, Brian Thomas is going to keep us. I always use the analogy of the bowling ball. He's the the bumpers that keep me out of the gutter. Yes, I will try. I'll do my best, and I'll try not to get hurt doing it. it's 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 a rough sport, I'm telling you. And, of course, Jim Riley, he spun the globe and picked the single most dangerous place in the entire world that he could possibly take a cruise. And so he's out and about spending all kinds of money. But on the other hand, we've got a pretty exciting show lined up without you, Jim Riley, because I know you're on vacation listening. So without you, we're going to be okay. On the line with us is Meryl McCarthy. Um, Meryl McCarthy and Matt Wiedenhoff and I, we're going to sit down together and try to understand whether immigration policy can make America great or make it weak. Meryl, welcome to the Mike Hewitt Show. Good morning, Mike. Listen, you've done some writing on this topic, I understand. Yes, I have. I'm I'm getting more interested in it, uh, more from the standpoint that um, I'm looking at the landscape of, of our political situation and realizing there are some big gaps to fill. There, There's a, a national conversation we're not having, and I think it's important. And I guess it starts at the kitchen table and moves on up because... We're not getting enough leadership on it from our elected officials. I, I think I, I, part, I partly agree with you, and let me just preface everyone. I think the folks that have been listening to this show know, know that this is a topic that we return to often because, frankly, I think America is in peril because of the policies. Now, where, where I would take a little bit of exception, Merrill, is I think leadership is providing leadership. I just really passionately disagree with the leadership they're providing. Um, to me, immigration, and, and listen, I'm, if you ever watch a YouTube for the show, you'll see often there's, there's a ship that floats through the images, and that's the boat that the Hewitt family came over on in 1881. I passionately support immigration. Uh, but on the other hand, when the Hewitt family landed, they were they were physically reviewed, they were emotionally interviewed to make sure that they weren't bringing disease to the United States and that they were mentally stable, that they weren't criminals. They didn't just say, please come on in, and by the way, here's a pot of gold that we stole from people that are working that we're well, we're going to give you. I think the policies that we have on immigration are very broken, but I think that immigration is good. We just need better policy. Do you agree with that? I agree with you 100%. In fact, uh, um, you you could have taken the words right out of my mouth. We're exactly on the same page. I'm very pro-immigration. It, like your family, my family is a family of immigrants, but um, it was a different time. I think our system got broken when we moved off the model that uh, that seemed to work when we actually vetted people who came in, and the people who came in wanted to be Americans. Um, I think with the the immigration policies of uh, starting in the mid-60s and uh, really in the the Refugee Resettlement Act in 1980, that's where things turned around. And 
to prove that to myself, I've talked to uh, immigrants who came just before the change, and they look at things now, and they realize that uh, it was the difference between day and night when they came here. When they arrived uh, in the late 70s, they, uh, they were expected to make it. Um, and if they if they didn't make it here, they would have to go home. There was no safety net. They might have been sponsored by a family member, uh, somebody to help them learn the ropes. They immediately learned English. There was no question about it. They became fluent in English within months. Uh, not today, like we're, when we have enclaves of people who have never learned the language, do not have to learn the language. Uh, for example, I live in southeastern Michigan in northern Detroit suburbs, and I live in an area that is becoming a pocket of an unassimilated Middle Eastern uh, country within a country. Right. There, it's happened. It's people, happened all over Europe, um, Meryl. Yeah. There's there's places there's cities in France where the police of France don't go. They just exactly. don't. They don't go there. So we have to ask in America if. If that's what we want to have happen in America, but part of it, when you refer to the change in, in 1980, part of it is is frankly the result of of leadership um, at a national level. By the way, looking at the math of what we're doing in terms of of replicating and being able to support the monolith of a socialist government that we are creating, and and frankly, the American citizens that are already in place as citizens are not birthing enough children to support their numbers, but more importantly to leadership, they're not birthing enough people to support the monolith, the, the, the social services programs we've got built up going forward. And, and then if you couple the fact that, that we're not having as many babies with the 60, 60 million plus that we've aborted, and they're scratching their head saying, hey, it isn't any more about, about reaching out in, in the paragraph that goes with, with the Statue of Liberty. Now it's a, so our agenda changed with immigration. Our agenda used to be to get quality people to build our country. Now it's just to get people with a pulse. And, well, and it, I think it's also that it's not our agenda as much as it's the U.N. agenda. The U.N. is choosing the refugees who come here. Well, but, but I agree with you, by the way, very, very passionately, but... But we are still a sovereign nation, and the fact that our leaders don't say, you know what, we're not doing that, that tells you that they're not only in, a, in agreement with the U.N. decisions, uh, and, and then specifically the, the League of 57 uh, Islamic nations, they're not only in agreement with them, but they're in league with them. And that, to me, is alarming, to say the extreme least. It's kind of like looking at, the, at our southern border and saying that we can't defend it. We can't because we choose not to not because it can't be defended. That is correct. I agree with you there. I, I agree. Um, no, it's, it's a big problem, and we, the leadership that we have or don't have in Michigan, when you look at what's, what's happened with, uh, well, for example, the Syrian refugees that we know are coming our way. Uh, we've been told by our president that uh, we're accepting 10,000 of them. And uh, I just looked at the refugee resettlement figures for uh, fiscal year 2015, which just ended on September 30th, and the, and the numbers are out now. And by looking at the numbers, um, 
on a map across the United States, you can determine just about where the Syrian refugees in this group of 10,000 will be placed. And it kind of tracks where there is already somewhat of a population of, of Syrians. And, and I would predict that um, very soon we will get at least 1,000 Syrians because in, our, in the refugee resettlement program, there is capacity for an unfilled uh, number of slots. From the, from the last uh, fiscal year where they were scheduled to come and they've held that open, I think we will be getting 1,000 Syrians in Michigan before the end of this calendar year. Uh, and I think they will be placed in places like southeastern Michigan, uh, Grand Rapids, and Lansing. Um, and this is just extrapolating the data looking at what has passed happened in the past. No, no, now, this, no, you know, this concerns me because our our senators, um, Peters and Stabenow, even though they have been warned by the FBI and in all kinds of hearings that we have no way of vetting these Syrians, we're still taking them in, and uh, it's just unbelievable. Now, now, I guarantee you, though, Meryl, that, and listen, this this little dinky country show of mine has has a blessing that... There are people on iHeartRadio.com listening. I've got family in Vegas. There's people I get emails from California, from from Wisconsin, from Florida. There's a lot of people listening that are thinking, so what? What's 1,000 out of 325 million? What do you say to that? Well, what I say to that is that that's just the first triple. <laughs> There's going to be many more after that. What happens is as soon as we get one uh, refugee in through the resettlement program, uh, they, they no longer um, get situated in their, uh, their taxpayer-funded apartment, then uh, they have a caseworker helping them do the paperwork to get the rest of the relatives to come over. Um, and that's a chain of migration that leads to many, you know, many other people. It's not, it's not just the individual refugee that's being helped, but it's everything else that comes in the chain. And as you mentioned before, um, many of the refugees that are coming have much higher birth rates uh, than we do. Uh, we know the Syrians that come uh, in the program are... 97% Muslim, uh, and that means just, you know, historically and and by information that we have, much, much higher birth rates. They have big families. They're encouraged to have big families. It really is part of their religion to have big families and to move into areas where infidels live to um, propagate you know, more uh, Islamization of the the infidel territories, which is really part of their um, belief system, which is Hishra, uh, and it's a lot more than just. I, you know, uh, Merrill, I I agree with those fears, but let me interject for a second. I first off, I got to say, I, I tend to be a Jeffersonian or a classical liberal-leaning conservative. That's not a liberal, folks. I'll say classical liberal. Please Google it. And what, when I when I listen to the conversation about the Islam. Islamic religion. Listen, I'm very, very comfortable with my faith. I'm not going to be converted. And, and and I'm not trying to convert them either. But I think the word that we really, as a nation, when we look forward and try to do something with immigration, because even the most conservative 
or classical liberal among us know that our immigration policy is broken. And that's an issue that's beyond religious differences. But, but when we rebuild the immigration policy, which desperately is needed, we have to use the word uh, assimilation. If, if, you know, I often tell the story, I've told it several times on the air, but when I was very young, I was working in the Hamtramck area. And since you're from that area, and I don't know how old you are, but I'm 54. When I first got out of school, one of my jobs was to collect premiums in Hamtramck. I was also a process server. There was a couple educations for my young young life. But when I, whenever I went to Hamtramck, it was filled with first-generation uh, Polish people. And the Poles there had absolutely, I mean, the picture definition of middle-class uh, inner-city homes. They were, on the other hand, they were absolutely perfectly manicured. There were American flags in the yard. There were political signs out every election. These people were involved, they were engaged, and they desperately wanted to be American. And so when we're out looking at the world saying, you know what, we're not having enough children to replenish ourselves, we need more people, folks, that's got to be a criteria. Who wants to actually be un-American? Not come here for the free pot of gold. And I and I, I end my little tyrant here tirade with the word free pot of the term free pot of gold for a reason. When we're trying to understand why our government is giving away our tax money to people that really don't want to be American, you have to understand that I, I spent most of my years in sales, and I know for an absolute fact that money motivates. And that's what they're using. They're, they're literally sponsoring what you and I are railing against. They're doing it on purpose. I agree. I, I, think, it's, I think it's clear that that's happening. Uh, much of this resettlement, um, and I'm not aware of it so much in Michigan, but in in many other states, a lot of the resettlement um, placements are close to um, meat processing plants or yogurt uh, processing facilities or or some some company that needs cheap labor. I I think there definitely is the uh, the economic tie-in, and it's been, there are tracks to follow. Um, I. I... I, I guess I, in in some relevance, agree with that. Uh, certainly the the folks from the Southern Hemisphere or Central Mexico area, Central America and South America, certainly tend to fall into that cliche of cheap labor. I, and by the way, I absolutely reject that politics. America has already fought and won a war against uh, slavery. And for our, and for our government or our or our large employers, or farmers, by the way, please attack me if you want. But the notion that we should lure people in for cheap labor, first off, is wrong because they're not cheap labor. Government, people, citizens, me and you, are subsidizing cheap labor. But we're causing people to live in a second-class citizenship. And, folks, that just is morally re reprehensible. It's ugly to me. It's it's something that we should have left in our history 150 years ago, not embrace it and debate it on a national stage on a presidential election. To me, I, it's crazy. Yeah. But I mm -hmm. think that's different than the Middle East issue. Those folks are largely not making uh, low wages. They're actually coming here and, and benefiting with, with some with some policies that's setting them up in business. And, and they're doing pretty darn well at it. I'm kind of jealous. <laughs> I, I am aware of things like that going on. I, I was referring to um, more places like um, 
the connections with the Somali uh, immigrants in places like Minnesota and other parts of the right. of the Midwest, where they they really are tied in with um, working in in packing plants. Although we have a, a number of Somalis also here in um, southeastern Michigan mm-hmm. in the in the suburban areas yeah, here. Now, that, now we do also over here in West Michigan. In fact, there there are a number of them. There, there, there's four of them that were brothers that came over, and listen, they're making truly a fine contribution, and I, I mean that wholeheartedly. They're working. They're educated. They're they're assimilating. They're wanting to be American. I accept them open arms because for me the key is: Do you want to be American? Their their answer is yes. I I, I, I couldn't agree them. more. I embrace I them. Yeah, I I do too. Now the the thing that we've also found out through looking at a recent Heritage Foundation study that for every ten thousand of these um, these migrants that are are coming in, and I'm talking about just the refugee resettlement program, um, there's an associated uh, cost with all the ancillary services and everything related, looking just to the strictly economics. $6.5 billion uh, for every 10,000 resettled refugees. Now, this is refugee resettlement big business. This this is a huge um, uh, thing to try to understand and, and wrap your arms around it because there there is so much connected with it. There are so – this is with not what it costs just to put the refugees uh, into a – a living situation, but um, job training, uh, language services, anywhere from teaching language to translation, to providing psychological counseling, to uh, you name it. There's a grant for everything. There's a there's a way for them to buy cars. There's um, you know cash uh, disbursements. It it goes on and on and on. And the uh, outfits that do the resettling, uh, these voluntary agencies that, that are working with the, with the government to place the refugees, they have religious-sounding names, but they're definitely in it for the business. Um, they, they make a lot of money doing so, this. So if I were in the business of placing refugees and, and I got paid a healthy amount per refugee, I probably wouldn't be so hung up on details like assimilation uh, Etc. I'd just be wanting to place numbers because that would be my business, and it goes to what I said earlier, and that's that money motivates. Uh, if you want an activity, pay for it, and that activity will exist. And so, yeah. if if we if we look if we look to the to the folks from South America coming up and coming through Mexico to get here, not Mexicans, but the folks from South America, and we know for an absolute beyond the shadow of a doubt fact that our federal government was literally advertising with billboards and pamphlets and radio spins in South America about what all benefits those folks would have. I think that's insane, but more, more than just the financial aspect of it, I would love to have folks from Mexico and South America be part of the American dream, but you get what you advertise for. And so if you go advertising for folks that want to come here for free stuff, guess what you're going to get? You get well, what you advertise yeah. for. I remember when I, when I was in retail sales and I used to I used to counsel uh, large businesses on, on how to do their advertising. And, and 
you know, they the, all of the salespeople said, oh, we get nothing but, but moochers and people with bad credit. Well, I said, well, that's because you advertise for people that are moochers with bad credit. That's okay. what your advertising does, and so that's that's who hears it. You know, right. it was large ticket items. I said, so if you do if you do cash get discounts, guess what you're going to get? People with money that want a cash discount, you get what you advertise for. So we advertise for folks that are looking for free stuff, and we get people that are looking for free stuff. There's no surprise here. This is just a little bit of a breach of common sense that our government seems to have fallen itself into. And listen, right. it's, it's both sides of the aisle, by the way. Oh, uh, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm I am a a a, a Republican absolute because I believe it is as to paraphrase Reagan, it's it's the best vehicle for liberty that we've got. But that doesn't mean that I'm blinded by what's going on. Our own Governor Snyder reaches out for the Syrian population that you're talking about, and and again, not a vetted Syrian population, but just raw numbers. I rail against that. Don't 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 go out seeking raw numbers. Let's find out who we're bringing in, and let's welcome those that want to assimilate. Um, same same with Obama. Same same exact mentality. And yeah. it's just to me, it's just wrongheaded. But more than more than the wrongheadedness of it, in in economics and who wants to all, who wants to assimilate and who doesn't, whether we need numbers or whether we don't, forget all of those arguments for a minute. It's dangerous. Mm-hmm. It's dangerous. Yes, it's putting it is. it's putting our families in harm's way, and that to me is exactly the opposite of the one of the few charges our federal government actually has, and that's to that, defend us. That's right, that's right. And you probably would be interested um, to know that one thing that's going on here. In fact, um, I'm going to be meeting with some people this evening. Uh, there's nobody that's more interested in the kind of immigration reform that we're talking about this morning than an immigrant who has come here and has completely assimilated and become an American first and whatever country they came from that's their heritage but they are 100 percent Americans Uh, this evening I'm meeting with a few local activists along with at least um, two of these uh, these refugees that have become full-fledged Americans Uh, one is a Christian Iraqi and uh, the other one is um, a Nigerian, and they are both stories of the true American dream, and they are they are so passionate and so much in love with this country and want it to be everything that uh, it can be and that they know it is, and 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 they are impassioned about doing what they can do to improve this broken immigration system. Very, very nice. Meryl, listen, we're, we're out of time for this segment, so we're going to have to go. But listen, as we go forward with this, guarantee there's going to be a lot more developments coming our way. So when, when that comes up, I'll look forward to getting you back on. In the interim, I know you do some writing. Is there a place that you'd like to direct folks to, uh, to uh, find you? Well, um, if you're familiar with Trevor Loudon, some of my pieces have been on his New Zeal blog. Um but uh, and you can probably look for, for yeah. more there as time goes on. And Trevor Trevor Loudon has been a guest on my show a couple times, and yeah. uh, uh, what what a dynamite individual he is! And I'm glad that you're a part of the organization he's put together, folks. If you Google Trevor Loudon, that's L O U D O N, I believe. If that's you, right. If you Google Trevor Loudon, 
You'll find what she's referring to, no doubt. You'll find some of her writings, but you're going to find a, a wealth of information. So, um, Meryl McCarthy, thank you very, very much for joining us. And, folks, we'll be right back after some commercials. Thank you very much. And back to the Mike Hewitt Show, brought to you by RenegadeRiver.com and your host, Mike Hewitt. Hey, before we jump right in, I wanted to pause for a minute. And Larry Hausman messaged us on Facebook. Um, talking about the uh, the last segment. Larry, thank you for your kind words. I, I appreciate you listening. Um, listen, Matt Wiedenhoff, did you watch the socialist debate last night? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, yeah, I did find myself sitting there for about an hour before I came out of my trance. I, I, I have to tell you, I, I really tried hard. I did. I would watch for a minute, get overdosed, and then move away. And it, for me, it felt like a competition to say, which one of us can give more extorted money away to people that didn't earn it? That's what it felt like to me. I, I and, and I, I'm, I'm sounding facetious, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to be. I didn't find anything that anybody on that stage, stead, stage said that I agree with. I really didn't. Their gun control, to me, is dangerous. It, it's, it's a dangerous policy. I, I equate it to saying, look, all of those bad guys over there are armed. We should disarm and I go, what? That is some upside-down thinking. When I, when I look at their economic policies, did you know that most of the Democratic Party candidates and elected officials spend a lot of their time talking about the top 20% needing to pay more, especially those evil one percenters on top? But something's really happened that's kind of compelling me to talk about for a minute. The bottom 20% of America. My classical liberal politics, conservatism in modern America, it's trying to find a way to help those folks become wealthy. It's I don't care if you're really uber successful. I don't care good for you. But how can we get the bottom 20% of America taking part in the American dream? And and they don't they don't talk about that. They do the opposite of talking about it. They talk about getting more funding to sustain that. Mm -hmm. And I just find that so poisonous. And I know the two positions are, and they, they listen to me, and I'm sure their heads explode and they don't understand me either. It's, it's, the, it's the cliche situation where two people can look at a glass of water and describe it absolutely, totally, truthfully different. We are that polar opposite. When I look at the mound of regulations that take a person who had a dream to start a business and stops him or her, that person could have been under the poverty level and said, I have a dream. I'm going to work like I learned in the history books. I'm going to work whatever it takes every day, six days a week, not seven. I'm going to work six days a week and make this work. And you know what they run into? The state of Michigan, the federal government, and a big, gigantic busload of regulators and little pointy heads running around trying to find out how they can fee, fine, and license charge them and tax them. And, and I just go, stop. You folks are causing this 20% to be stuck with the on, on education level. By the way, that's the Enigma report in the third segment today is all about education. And, and so I'm, I'm kind of using some of my material early by accident. But when you have an educational system that
that generates an equivalent result to the Haitian education system, do you really expect anything different than a Haitian economy? Honest. No. And will more money change people with no education? The answer is no. Stop it. Let's give these folks some opportunity. Matt, am I off in the ditch here? Am I wrong? No, you're right. I think the message, the way people understand it is the Democrats will give you prosperity. Republicans will make you earn prosperity. And people don't want to earn anything. The problem, with the, it. the problem with that is, and I know that, that, I know that that's the cliched thing, and I'm, I'm not assaulting you. The problem with it is, is that the Democrats don't give prosperity. No. I don't. I'm not. I don't want them to. So don't misunderstand. But that's me. their message, though. It's not what they actually do. They they actually keep people enslaved into the system. If you were the sixth generation welfare recipient and you were poor and had a third grade reading level, would you pause, like Ben Carson's mother did, and say we have to do something different for the generation we're bringing forward? We have to break the chain. Am I wrong? No, you're right. How can people, anybody, any color, any any religion, anything, sit on their edge of their chair last night and listen to what essentially amounts to uh, Johnson's failed war on poverty on, on steroids and not go, wait a minute, that didn't work. <laughs> Think about this for a minute. The war on poverty took Detroit from being in the top wage-earning community to the toilet in two decades and you think really do we want more of that i don't get it honest i don't get it no i don't understand when i'm watching it last night that there's people who actually believe what they're saying there's people who actually believe in the values they're trying to portray and i don't get that i I, I don't understand i can't comprehend how you can want to not be able to have the opportunity to defend yourself, how you can want the opportunity to pay more in taxes the better you do to prop somebody else who's not doing well. I don't understand that. Listen, I can't get some, it through me. Some of it I do understand. Let me let me pause you for a minute. If I were wealthy, if I were in the top 20%, folks, I'm not. But if I were, even at the level I am now, I want to help people. Okay, I do. I want to help people. What Here's what I don't want to do. But you want to help them directly. I want to help them. But the reason I want to help them directly is because I don't want to just give them dough that keeps them locked into a certain brick. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do that. I, I, I think that's disrespectful. Frankly, I think it's evil. That, that debate aside, just from the economics of it, if I have a dollar bill that I can, that I can help a fellow American with, I want that dollar bill to help help the American. I don't want 87 cents of it to be gobbled up in administrative costs in our state and federal governments. I think it's insane. Or even within nonprofits. But well, but, yeah, but I'm real careful with where I put my nonprofit yeah. bill, Ramey, because of that. Um, and in fact, uh, an old an old dear friend of mine years ago talked about where he and he was extremely wealthy, by the way, where he would donate his time. He gave money, but he was a volunteer, and so and of course you wouldn't have known it. This guy was a multimillionaire, and he's unwrapping gifts with the Salvation Army, and he's doing that kind of stuff. But he would look at these organizations, 
And if you have a CEO of an organization that's making $647,000 a year, folks, here's a shocker. That ain't a charity, okay? That's a big that's a big business. It's the big business that we all say that we're not so fond of. I'm only saying that I think that if you really want to be charitable in the Christian fashion, which is how a lot of the left will will try to defend that, I don't think you send a dollar to Washington, D.C., knowing that 13 cents will get back to help the folks. I think you roll up your sleeves and you get in there and help yourself. And if you see a need for a $10 bill, use your $10 bill wisely. And that 13 cents that goes back to the people, is it still taxed at the 15 to 34%? (laughs) So they get more of it? Again. (laughs) It's a crazy thing. And people sit and go, yeah, that makes sense. No, it doesn't. Get a piece of paper out. I get the feel-good part. I get the idea that we need to help folks. I agree, passionately agree. But can we use our brain just for a change? Can we get that money motivates? And if I keep you, if I steal your mother of necessity and I make it so that you have no reason to excel, I am in effect putting you in financial bondage. But more than that, I'm killing your spirit. Perfect example. I got somebody I know pretty well through somebody else, had a job, and because of the job, she was going to lose all of her benefits, meaning uh, Medicaid, or uh, yeah, Medicaid for her family. She decided that, oh, and the the bridge card they were getting to help subsidize. She can't work. No, she got the job. She was there two weeks, and they gave them a notice that because of the job, they're losing the Medicaid and the food stamps. And that by losing those, she would have actually lost thousands. Yeah. So she had no choice but to quit the job. Right. So she She literally quit the job to live on the system because it was more conducive to be able to survive. Think about that for a minute, folks. We are motivating people. We are financially paying them to stay in poverty. So when you compare the United States, this is where I was going with this big drive, when you compare the United States' bottom 20% to the rest of the free world, it is more difficult in America to get off the bottom 20% than in any other free country in the Western world. And I'm telling you, folks, that, to me, is criminal. It's done on purpose, and it's criminal to purposefully keep entire swaths of the American people in poverty in pursuit of votes and control is evil. I don't know how else to put it. But when you compare us to Canada, when you compare us to Great Britain, when you compare us to Germany, across the board, our bottom 20% in in a nation that was founded on opportunity, it's harder to get out of our bottom 20% than any other country in the world. Now, here's the best part, though. You heard Bernie Sanders, well, at least I heard Bernie Sanders last night. He he blamed it on the top 1%, which I'm sure he's part of. And I'm sure Hillary Clinton's part of, and Jim Webb, everyone else people is part of that top 1% they're complaining about. And never once do they say the government keeps them down because they are the government and they want to keep those people down. It's not the top 1%. It's the people saying that it's the top 1%. Well, it's just, you're blaming the rich people because they're so successful and they don't want to share with the rest of the world. That's just that's just idiot. It, it's idiot thinking. Listen, it's class warfare. Yeah. And, and, it's right. and, and it's designed to keep people angry. Right. And, and you know, rather than getting you focused on success, I'm going to keep you angry because angry will have you wrongheaded and you're going to stay, 
you're going to stay on in financial bondage. You're right. going to keep voting for me because right. I'm the person with the check. I'm promising to pay that evil, successful person back, and I'm going to give you his or her money. The thing I don't understand is that the government will qualify people based on their low income. But what do they ever look at the reason for the low income? I mean, there are people who are you know obviously disabled and they can't work or they don't have nobody will hire them because of their disability. It's not practical to hire somebody like that. But there there are able-bodied people who have low income on their own choosing, essentially. Why don't the government qualify people based on the reason for their low income instead of just assuming that they got to have their income is low so they, they qualify for these benefits. I think you're right, Brian, because there's people who have come out publicly and said, I'm having another child because I need more money. They, they've actually, they're in the news about it, so, bragging how they're having more kids. Right, so that, yeah, they want the kids to, to be hungry and so these women just, they help baby, you know, they just have an excuse to, to become a, 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 a mother again with no uh, father in, in, you know, in the house. The old, the old saying, you cannot strengthen the weak by weakening the strong. Right. Um, and, and to me, the obviousness of this is is deafening. It really is. To anyone that gets outside of the political uh, envelope for a minute, set your anger aside for a moment, and sit down and look at yourself. What and If you're successful, by the way, look at yourself and say, what were the things that I did that caused me to be successful, and how can I share that recipe with other people? And if you're not successful, then sit down with a piece of paper and a pen and a mirror and look yourself in the face and say, what choices have you made that caused this? And if you can't find one, say, what choices can I make to change this? Which is the key? What can I do? Not Hillary Clinton, not Donald Trump. What can I do to change my lot in life? And folks... If you've got someone in your family, and I promise you, you you do, that needs that advice, please share it with them. What can they do to change their lot in life? Man, this is an easy recipe. It's nothing that extorting your wages and giving them to somebody else, it doesn't help anybody. Now, why do I want to go work harder just to give more that I don't get to choose? You know, you watch people, they give money to a university, an endowment. They get to choose how that's spent, where it's spent, and what they want to do with it. It's a huge, it could be a multi-million dollar donation, it could be a thousand dollars, but they get to choose, so it makes them feel that they're getting what they want, the value out of their dollar. The same should be here. If I want to help Bob down the street get a job and feed his family, I should be able to choose to do that. Here's the thing, though. The the, the liberal leadership, not your average Democrat or liberal or self-defining, liberal, independent, whatever they are. I'm not talking about those folks, but the leadership that are seeking elective office. Those folks are masters at saying, an example, birth control. Listen, I think it's sinful and tyrannical to cause me to pay for things I do not believe and find abhorring. I think that's tyrannical. I do. It's Jefferson's quote. I'm paraphrasing, but I think he's spot on. That isn't the debate, folks. That's what they've changed the debate to be. The issue is, is is there really a war on women? So they say because Mike Hewitt doesn't want to pay for somebody's abortion, he has a war against women. No, I don't. That has nothing to do with it. And by the way, it isn't even revealing my stance on abortion. It's saying I don't want to pay for it. <laughs> Rush Limbaugh got in a lot of trouble over talking about this particular issue. 
and uh, well, he got in trouble by talking about a very individual person oh, with, yeah. with some names. Yeah, but I and but it's true. Why do I pay for your actions? I but no. really the, the whole concept of walking into Mayberry RFD's drugstore and saying to the druggist. Um, listen, I've got the whole towner paying for my condoms. I brought this bag. Just yeah. fill it up. Thank you. I'm not paying for your sex life. I don't know how else to say it to you. That's not a war on women. And by the way, by the nature of the dialogue, if we're going to call it a war on women, we have to call the other half of it a war on men. Because it takes two people to have sex oh. that this requires. Uh, prevention for. So how do they take an act that takes a man and a woman and turn it into a war on women just because Mike Hewitt doesn't want to pay for an abortion? Because what, 53% of the population is women? But they're having sex with men or they wouldn't need birth control. No, no, I'm saying by turning it onto that side, it's they about get a majority votes. for it's votes. A, it's about votes. Yep. But folks, we got to slow down. Because I don't want to give my dollar bill to the government so that they can abscond with 87% of it, doesn't mean that I don't want to help poor people become prosperous. I don't want to help poor people remain poor people. Now, they can accuse me of, being, of, of that, and I would say that's a truism. I absolutely do not want to support somebody knowing that I'm going to keep them in financial bondage. Count me out. I'm not interested. I'm going to fight about it till I got no more breath left. I'll be done. Okay? Now, if you say, Mike, will you help those folks? Absolutely. Count me in. I will be there in person. I did that for a long time, for the last year and a half. Probably got to the point of, I'm not willing to help somebody who's not willing to help themselves. I'm always that way. No matter who it is, I will help you until I die. But the moment I realize you're not willing to help yourself, I'm done. Why would I help someone who doesn't want to help themselves? Folks, we got to go to a break. But when we come back, the enigma is going to be education. Contemporary education in America is an enigma to me. We'll be right back. And back to the Mike Hewitt Show brought to you by RenegadeRiver.com. And it's the third segment. And that means it is time for the Enigma Report. I guarantee you, wherever Jim Riley is at, he's clapping right now. Oh, he did it good. He did it good. He did it good. He gets so excited. <laughs> he does. Listen, in school, I was taught to take smaller bites of the apple. Eat the elephant one bite at a time, they'd say. Work smarter. Attention to detail, Mike. And then they knocked down the little school I attended, and they built a $70 million complex in its place. <laughs> Wait a minute. I'm confused. What happened to work smarter, take smaller bites. And then and then you have these big, you know, part of the thing goes to kind of what we were talking about wrapped through the first two segments. Part of it goes to what our goal is. What, what are we trying to achieve here? And I think what we're trying to achieve has changed. When I was in school, the idea, I'm 54, so you can do the math. I'm talking 70s and 60s. When I was in school, the goal was, was to prepare Prepare our young for a successful life. Now, that mission has changed. It changed because money became the focus. That's my view. I believe that. I think when we went from paying from the, from the little township school, we're going to talk about that in a second, when we went to paying for the little township school to these big, gigantic monolith of buildings, and they said, it's more efficient, Mike, don't you understand? It's not more efficient, folks. That is a bold-faced lie. It's not more efficient. It's about money. 
And when you can't understand how a nation that pays more per pupil than anywhere else in the free world has results that are about two-thirds up the ladder for all the rest of the countries in the free world, you ever notice progressives always want to talk about how things are done somewhere else except for when it comes to education? Yeah. They don't want to talk about it anymore. But listen, here's what I'm saying to you. There are a lot of countries in the world that do their education very, very differently than how we do it. We had Yuri on from, um, where was he from, Matt? From the Czech. We had him on one afternoon, and and it was a Sunday, in fact, so I can say afternoon. And uh, this young man, uh, as I understand, he's doing international uh, studies, mm-hmm. and he's from Czech, Czech Republic. In fact, he was born in Czechoslovakia and is now a citizen of the Czech Republic. So we got to talk about that for a minute. Talked about how in his school you had three choices in your in your your attention, your how, how hard you worked, frankly, how smart you may be. Inevitably, it's how hard you worked, according to him, caused you to be placed in one of these three schools. The top is the top and the bottom is not so much if you were an academiac. I'm not, by the way, I'm not advancing that. I'm saying that we need to pause for a moment and say, since what we're doing by any honest measure is not working, we need to pause for a moment and do some self-reflection. In my view, it is an enigma that we don't have the common sense and the self-willpower to look into our own history and say, when did we have better results? When did we have better results and what were we doing then? And what other countries are having better results than we are right now? And what are they doing? And let's take a look at what we're doing and try to fix it because it's broke. The idea of having hundreds and hundreds of kids under one $70 million roof, I can't even imagine the heat bill. Or here's a fascinating thing from for you folks in my age group and older. I can't imagine the air conditioning bill either. Because <laughs> when I was a kid, the air conditioning bill was to crank the three windows up. Okay, and, and but that was preparing people for real life. This is not. I had an assistant principal say, Mike, you don't understand. He was talking about one of my daughters. This isn't real life here. I was aghast that he said that. It was more than an enigma that he acknowledged that. But let's pause for a moment. I've talked about this before on the show. You have a 95% plus or minus college preparatory curriculum. You have a 25%. Well, they, they call that. They call it that. I don't care what they call it. That's where we're going is 25% of our high school graduates will graduate from college, but you have a 95% college college preparatory curriculum. Yes, I agree with you, by the way, because when they come up with a rounded education, they created a donut and they sucked out reading, writing, and arithmetic, and common sense and critical thinking seem to be absent from our goal now. Yeah, they're not college ready. But look, they're that. not college ready, which is, which is the part that I'm trying to get to. If you then go and talk to colleges, including yourself who educates people on a college level, and talk to almost anybody, even the uber left there, they'll tell you our freshmen are not ready for this. And I pause and I scratch my head. What do you mean they're not ready? We have a $70 million complex. We have 95% curriculum for college preparatory courses. Only one out of every four will graduate from college. You're telling me that those folks, the crim de crum, they're not ready? What are we doing? Not the obvious. We know what we're doing wrong. Why aren't we fixing it? That's the enigma. Here's my fix, okay? I think America would be very far off. I say again, 
a positive step forward would be for the neighborhood communities to take back education by assembling their own small schoolhouses, township by township, by the way, bypass misguided curriculums handed down by the state and federal governments, along with their never-ending control tactic fundings. That's all it is. It's a funding. Grant, grant, grant. That's all I hear. Read one of those grants some days and look at the trades you're making with every grant you clap like penguins for is over the top. It's an enigma that we think that this is a good deal. It's not a good deal, folks. Let's go back to the things that worked and let's rebuild America because I'm convinced if we don't fix our education and if we don't fix our American family, which, by the way, is the first problem to our education, then America doesn't have a future. It's just that simple. When you were in school, Mike, did they did they remind you to make sure you were there tomorrow because it's count day? <laughs> no, it was assumed that I'd be there, and if I wasn't, there was a problem going on. Well, I remember even when I was in school, when I graduated late in the You got to you got to be there because there's something big yeah. going to happen tomorrow. Yeah, you better be here tomorrow. Tomorrow's count day. If you're going to miss any day, it happened three times a year. You better be here because if you're not here, the school doesn't get the seventy five hundred dollars ahead or whatever they're getting. And they would tell us, you have to be here tomorrow. Count day. Funding. And it was a fun day. The teachers made sure it wasn't a work day so that everybody would be there. Money motivates. Literally. Count day. How about if we had our funding tied to success? Oh, no. How about if we skip federal and state funding, like I said a moment ago, and, and don't build some $70 million monolith that it takes the federal government to support? How about if we reduce ourselves back down to the township and we, the people, take command of our own education for our own young. Does that make sense? It makes sense to me. That's why my kids are in a school right now. They have one class per grade. Listen, I hear music, so that, that means my time is up. But next week, folks, speaking about motivating, next week is the third anniversary for this show, and I promise you I am going to have both my hairs on fire. <laughs> both of them right on fire next week. Third anniversary, folks. We'll have some special guests. I'll look forward to seeing you then. Thanks, and have a great week and in the meantime if you're wondering if you got ideas for what we should do go to the facebook forward slash the mike hewitt show or tweet me at talk mike hewitt folks we'll see you in seven days six days we'll see you next wednesday have a great week folks